Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Why and when did you guys decide to start doing uh, your series? You know, we we'd been talking about it for for a while, like before I even um, started working people. The original plan to pivot to a podcast was to have me and Zach do a podcast that we were tentatively calling Left Passing, where, you know, we kind of use my kind of background in in labor history and, and radical politics and Marxist theory and Zach's background in econ, economic mm. history and economic theory to kind of pry open some of the more like taken for granted aspects of leftist politics today, particularly regarding things like the minimum wage and things like profit sharing and and cost of living and socialized housing and stuff like that. Project isn't necessarily dead, but, um, you know, we're, we're kind of going back to the drawing board now that that working people's gotten off the ground. And Zach, it sounds to me like you had better things to do with your time, but your brother forced you into doing this. Yeah? Just, uh... Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally. But as ever, I am Royful Brown, who is in a Christmassy Toronto, and I'm roasting my chestnuts. Today, I'm speaking to Maximilian Alvarez, who's a dual PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, and he's also a columnist for the Baffler magazine. We're also joined by his brother, Zachary, who is also a writer and also is an economist from the University of Chicago. Uh, they both work on a great podcast called Working People. For nearly 75 years, we've been leaving our mark on America, the General Motors mark of excellence. But you may be asking, what have you done for me lately? Right now, we're using the latest techniques in computer-aided design, lasers and robotics to build cars and trucks that carry on the tradition of GM excellence. 
We're conducting the most advanced safety-related research in the industry. And with the help of technology like aerodynamic research, GM has improved mileage 100% since 1974. Excellence isn't just a quality, it's a commitment and a promise to always be better and better. We're doing everything we can to be the best GM ever. I'm going to start with you, Max. What is the premise behind your podcast, Working People? Thanks for uh, having us on, uh, Royfield. And I and I feel you on the chattering teeth. We're both from Southern California. Now we're in the Midwest, and we always complain every time the winter rolls around. <laughs> so solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a, a essay come out in the new issue of Current Affairs, which is a great left leaning magazine. Um, and I kind of tried to explain there where the premise for working people came from. You know, honestly, it was really steeped in like the personal experience of of our family um, having lost, you know, just about everything in the recession, me having to work, you know, like in factories and warehouses and stuff like that just to get by our family doing whatever we could just to get by. And I mean, like that's obviously it's a common experience, you know, for for anyone in the working class. But what I really started to pick up on was uh kind of the the harder to articulate soft tissue of like the deeper psychological and and existential kind of um complications that come with experiencing something like that and what i mean is that you know we all started to recede into ourselves we started to pile more and more undeserved blame on ourselves. We started to convince ourselves that that we were the only ones going through this and that everyone else was doing fine and that it was all our fault and that most, most importantly, no one wanted to hear our problems, that it was our burden and ours alone to to deal with. And, you know, I just saw and, and felt how much that eroded the um like our, our our sense of ourselves and our sense of of family and connectedness to the outside world and it you know it's 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 just a a path of of complete and utter existential destruction and and having worked at at you know all kinds of crappy exploitative jobs i could just see how much uh, how widespread that problem was in in so many workers out there and you know i i, I felt that from a deep personal standpoint i needed to to talk to people about what was going on in my life and their lives and and to try to kind of break out of that notion that it was it started and ended you know like with my own um personal experience and wasn't connected to anything larger than that you know i started to see just how much other workers and, and other people in my family would open up if you really just gave them the time of day to listen to to their experience and to really you know validate and and recognize your shared humanity in the ways that you talk to one another and and I think through that I've found that you know workers around the country have started to through through this show but also through many other you know um means whether they be social media or whether they just be you know talking about their paychecks um or at having a smoke break you know during their shift 
But all these ways of, of workers communicating with each other leads to um, the forming of bonds of solidarity that, that we need to form if we're going to address the kind of systemic ills that we are witnessing um, and that are playing out today and affecting the lives of working people everywhere, not just in in the United States. So it's it's a it's a project that's really meant to give a voice to workers who were so often denied that voice in mainstream media. And by the way, uh, Max, um, that is probably the most fullest answer I've ever received on on Mid Atlantic. So, <laughs> so, so so thank you for waxing poetical and philosophical to, to my question. Zach, kind of at the heart of the American psyche is this notion that to work hard is good and anyone can achieve their American dream if they work hard. If that is true, why is it that also very central to the story that America tells of itself is that it's very distrustful of organized labor. Why is there this dichotomy uh, when you view uh, this Protestant work ethic, which is at the heart of uh, supposedly America, but then it's a kind of vexed relationship to organized yeah. labor? <laughs> the American mythology, as far as the economic story, is very interesting, right? Because it is rooted in this sort of individualism, being able to sort of pull yourself up Right, bootstraps, work hard, and get ahead. And it sounds like a great story. It's actually really dependent on sort of organizations up top. You know, and now we think of as corporations or higher education organizations to sort of facilitate that individualism. And I think that where the sort of conflict with organized labor comes is out of this idea that it is a challenge to the um to the power structure that is facilitating individualism right so it's almost like you're forsaking the thing that that we're giving you right we're allowing you to be able to shine through hard work and to to rise to the top it's almost like a how dare you one question that that sort of gift that we're giving you and then try to get others to sort of organize against it so it is kind of weird in that you know we we're okay with organized movements sort of at the top in our corporations and um, as long as they guide the path that we've told ourselves exists but in doing so sort of have to be at each other's throats um was there ever a time zach when kind of the body politic in america was much more favorable towards organized labor it seems to me that it's definitely since the since the eighties with Reagan that things have really turned against organized uh, labor, not just in America, to be fair, but also in the UK and throughout um, other bits of, of the Western world. Not all of it, um, but was there a time when um, organized labor was welcomed into kind of the American firmament, so to speak? Yeah, and so there was, and unfortunately, it sort of came at the time when you know, the entire economic system sort of came to its knees, right? So after the, the 29 crash in the stock market and the you know, depression that followed, I, I think there was a major identity crisis in terms of, is the system that we built one that is ultimately going to ruin us? And for so many people who were just in, complete, or in a completely horrible situation, um, there was this notion that, we have to come together, both, you know, sort of from a labor perspective, but also 
in terms of, you know, what would be considered sort of the corporate class or leadership. I think they had a bit of a, a, a reckoning, um, the run-up and the excesses that led to that crash. And then there was also at the time uh, a common enemy to sort of rally around and uh, the spirit of just sort of American industrial capacity needed to run full throttle to to not only get us out of this depression, but combat uh, sort of this enemy on the horizon. So that was a time really where there was this sort of coming together. And then I think as that waned in America, again, rose to just this incredible superpower status after World War II, that that sort of solidarity sort of passed and, and corporate class began its long march to chip away at that organized labor and, and sort of culminated with the Reagan policies and, and got us to where we are now. Or, Mm. Max, you on your series have kind of focused in on General Motors and for for many people looking at America, General Motors is almost synonymous with America. Obviously, you have Motown, Detroit, etc. Why did you specifically uh, pick GM and to go into the weeds with GM? As to explain and to examine the rise and the fall and the, the troubles of uh, working people in the US. The situation with GM right now really kind of draws attention to to many of the great lies that sit at the heart of our political economy. And some of these Zach already touched on because in the in the during the Great Depression, that was another moment where, you know, the these Many of these lies had been exposed, right? And and the infrastructure of the system itself was revealing itself to be worm-eaten and dependent on so many um, factors that hadn't been taken into account. Um, and I think that given, you know, like our, our um, current political and economic woes, the situation um, at GM um, is really um, kind of like a, I think, a boiling point for tensions that are are by no means limited to GM or you know the auto industry or industrial manufacturing um, alone. Well, first there was the fact that you know this news hit like a bomb. It was a massive layoff. The announcement from Mary Barra was is that around fourteen thousand jobs will be lost. Um, five plants will be idled, although um, GM is being very tactical about how it's wording that. It, because in the 2016 bargaining agreement with the UAW, they said they would not close or idle plants. And so they're using the term unallocated to try to get around that. But also, I mean, like I'm, I'm in Michigan, right? You know, and, and, you know, I've seen and talked to so many people and communities for whom um, the auto industry um, and, and industrial manufacturing in general um, was such a, a a focal point for the story of the rise and fall of quality of life here. You know, you can see it all over the place in Michigan. You can see it everywhere in, in the Rust Belt. And these plants that are going to be closed are in Michigan, Ohio, Maryland, and and in Canada, up in, in, in Oshawa. Like I said, they really bring to a head a lot of the problems that working people are facing and that are political system is facing in grappling with the fundamental disadvantages that working people have in maintaining um, a, a steady quality of life in 
this economy. And in just talking to um, the workers in in Lordstown, did another series uh, with the Hamtramck plant um, in Detroit and and the other in, in Oshawa. Right. Any one of the workers that I talked to, some of them were Trump voters. Some of them described themselves as socialists. One described herself as an anarchist. I mean, they're, they're an incredibly varied group of people. And that's another thing I want to highlight is that, you know, for this series and for the podcast in general, is that when we talk about the issues facing the working class, we have to understand that the working class is not this kind of uniform, monolithic um, and simplistic notion that we have in our head um, and our in our abilities to combat the issues facing working people need to understand that sort of um, variation and that complexity. But any one of these workers, regardless of how different they may be in their points of view and life experiences, they'll tell you that it's not just GM. They'll tell you that you know, this is a problem that all workers are facing where, you know, we in our communities that these communities that not only depend on the labor of um, people working at GM, but who also depend on the purchasing power and rent prices and everything else that gets folded into these um, plants being open and these jobs being sustained. Like these, these entire communities are going to collapse and we've already seen it in places like Flint. And so what, what the GM workers have been telling me is that in regards to the situation that labor writ large is facing, right? We are dealing with a, a world historical a world historical bind where workers and communities are um, essentially at the mercy of corporations who have said up front that they are not there to consider the best interests of the workers and communities that they're depending on, right? Mary Barra, when she announced this, said that their primary allegiance at GM is and always will be to its shareholders, so like even though GM got a massive tax cut with with Trump's tax cuts last year, they still went and opened up a plant in Mexico. They still announced these sorts of the, these massive layoffs and plant closures. And that's again, it just exposes this sort of lie that we can we can finagle a way for capital and labor to be to live harmoniously when capital is by no means made answerable to the people and the communities that it is um, using for labor and for and for revenue. OK, I'm going to try and bat for the other side in this debate just for a moment. So, Zach, the question to you. Why should GM, a company that at its peak in 1979 employed 618,000 employees across the United States, why does it have a responsibility to, let's say, Flint, Michigan or to Detroit when arguably those cities would never have been what they became without GM? Why does it still have some kind of legacy towards these places, considering in 2017, GM only employs about 180,000 people in the US. Yes. It is a purely for-profit business. It's not an arm of the government. Why? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to say. Maybe before I answer the question about sort of having a, um, a sort of loyalty to the to the place that they, they built up in, I'll, I'll take that last point there. So for-profit company, not a government entity. So 
I think one is that, well, it's not a, a government entity. It is, and what, or it was bailed out, so it needed the government to get on, get back on its feet. It is heavily subsidized, or it receives subsidies to the government. It's just so it, it, it does benefit directly from policies, and in fact, survival uh, depended on the government stepping in and propping it back up. So I do think that there is some there is something to be paid back there, and we can sort of talk about whether or not that belongs to Detroit and Flint, or if it just belongs to sort of the the workers that it employs. And then the second piece about it, you know, being sort of a for-profit company, and then a for-profit public company where sort of the maximum of returning maximum profits to the shareholders is, I think, the one that that needs to be thought of with a, with a sort of wider lens, right? So shareholder value, I think, started off as potentially a, a fairly broad term, and we have whittled it down into meaning profits and really stock price, right? So there's a lot of shareholders or st- stakeholders in GM that, that could fall into that umbrella of shareholder value, right? You know, the folks who, are own, who own stock in GM obviously benefit um, and need to be considered, but whether or not they should be considered at the expense of uh, the community that they operate in, um, the taxpayers that bail them out, the workers that produce those products, is a question that we need to ask. In particular with GM, why I think this topic is such a, or such a big deal is that they are really emblematic of a lot of the problems that have gone on since 2009. So since we have you know, dropped interest rates down to zero and we injected a ton of money into the system, a lot of that money has found its way into corporations taking out loans to buy back their stock versus invest in things that are more productive. And so when I think about GM and sort of the, I think they've spent $14 billion buying back their stock to prop up their share price. I mean, that's money that is not productive for the long-term health of shareholders and certainly not to the other stakeholders that I mentioned. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. President Trump lobbing threats at General Motors over its plan to slash more than 14,000 jobs. He says he may pull subsidies and even retweeted an account that said GM should pay back the $11.2 billion bailout that was funded by the American taxpayer. GM's decision will likely devastate entire communities built around these plants in Ohio, Maryland, Michigan as well. NBC's Morgan Rafford is in Michigan. She's in Detroit. She's talked to some of the workers uh, who, as I understand it, Morgan, a number of these workers have no idea whether they're going to have a job uh, next year in the new year. They don't know, Craig. In fact, many of them have said this is some of the worst possible news they could receive right before the holiday season. So we spoke to one worker, Peggy Jones. She's been working here for 21 years. And like many of her colleagues, she said they came in for a meeting and they found out that this plant was likely one of those five that would be shutting down. And we're talking about 15,000 people who would be without jobs. So this is really news that has devastated this community, not only for those local business owners who rely on the traffic and the people who come into their local businesses, but also for those workers who are still inside this plant today, toiling away. Take a listen to what Peggy had to say. When you think about this level of uncertainty so close to the holidays, what goes through your mind? It's hard. It's, it hurts. It does. What's the feeling right now in this community? Because it seems like this plant was a major source of jobs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's more than just us inside the plant. There's all the businesses around us. It's just, it's really, I mean, we're still in shock mode right now. It hasn't really sunk in. But are we beating up GM because they were bailed out, uh, Max, by the government in 2008? You know, uh, a measure which Obama didn't really get the credit which he deserved in terms of saving the U.S. auto industry. And he and he didn't really beat his chest up about it. Is that the reason why you guys are somewhat pointing the finger at GM, or are you just saying this is specifically just like one example of how corporations in America, when they need a handout, can get a handout, but actually they have no kind of moral responsibility to uh, to communities, etc. Because um, looking at this from from a Western perspective. There is a social contract in Germany and let's say BMW um, has some workers on its board and and has very much a different relationship to, I'm getting my German car manufacturers mixed up now, but the one that's in Stuttgart, let's say, which I can't remember if that's BMW, but so, somebody will email me and say, God, you got that <laughs> wrong. But I have, I have a very different relationship to not only to, to workers, but also to the cities that kind of spawn those industries. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're pressing on, on the real vital point here, right? Which is that, you know, uh, you know, Royfield, you know, that, um, I describe myself as a, as a lefty nut job. I'm very, very transparent on my show about my politics, but love to foster these kinds of open discussions. And I feel like this is, this is one that we don't have often enough. And, you know, I think that the, the real point is that even coming, looking at this from like a leftist Marxist like perspective, I think the answer to your question is, is no, like GM, 
does not have like any built in need to to express or even feel a sense of loyalty to these communities. And that's the problem is that the the political economy that we have set up has no sort of checks or incentives to kind of redirect those flows back into any sort of more harmonious arrangement between capital, labor, purchasing power, trade, and so on and so forth. It just repeatedly puts labor and, and the communities that workers are in at the, you know, like, practically feudal behest of of corporations that deign to take up shop in their areas and we need look no further than the circus that we just witnessed when amazon was prepared to open up a second headquarters right and all the things that that cities were willing to give up with this like supposed promise of bringing jobs to these like areas when the tape shows us that you know the 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 for the working people who live in these areas this is not a good thing right this is going to mean gentrification and and so on and so forth the point that i'm making is that there is no kind of built-in incentive for any sort of um kind of more holistic arrangement between labor and capital. You know, without that, we're left fumbling for kind of any sort of notion that operates on the realm of like, say, morality or or even terms like loyalty. These are sort of kind of non-economic terms that we're trying to apply to a political economy that has no use for them. And I think that that is always, you know, going to be a losing battle for us. And that's why, you know, when Zach and I, you know, talk and, and you know, you just mentioned this, um, you know, there are ways to think about this in terms of, of building labor into that notion of of shareholders who are um, the ones that corporations are, are answerable to. You know, that is a potential you know way to look at it. Um, and, and for me, you know, I think that it again, it, it points to the lie at the heart of the system, just like um, the 2008 financial crisis did. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say that, like, are we just unfairly browbeating GM? I think if we take GM as the single bad actor here, then yes, that is unfair, unnecessary and unproductive in the same way that we thought, you know, the, the financial crash could just be pinned on a couple of greedy bankers and not the system that incentivizes them and that leaves very few punishments or or systems of accountability for them to act in any sort of any any more of a responsible manner and you know that's but that's not to say that that labor has no um things to answer for in this in this history as well and i think that looking at the history of industrial unionism is really, you know, instructive. You asked earlier if there was a, a period where, you know, lab, organized labor was more accepted. And, and Zach talked about how, like, in the during the Depression, you saw this massive rise in the union push. You saw a massive push from communists and socialists having much more of an impact on the direction of organized labor. Um, and then in the post-war period, you see this sort of... Um, kind of deal with the devil that that gets made between organized labor and capital. And there are a number of factors there where one being, you know, that that as the Cold War plotted on, you know, and unions were kind of encouraged to to be more vigilant in policing their own ranks and purging them of radical elements. But at the same time, 
um, unions opted for a concessionary bargaining model where for, you know, from then on out, they would be negotiating with um, these companies for kind of regular wage increases, benefits, um, so on and so forth, as opposed to sticking with a more militant tradition that had its eyes on the prize of a, a greater share of the means of production itself. And and this was um, this kind of like deal was supplemented by a post-war boom, um, economic boom in North America and a strong, much stronger welfare state. Um, but now that both of those um, things have kind of evaporated, at least as far as labor is concerned, um, we're realizing how insufficient this sort of concessionary view of labor's relationship to capital really, really is and how how little you can actually corral the um, the incentives of corporations like GM if you don't actually have more material means to push them into uh, what you called a, a social contract of sorts. Uh, Zach, do you think that we get dewy-eyed on the right and the left about the halcyon days of manufacturing. It seems to be that when we talk about the working class and it, it's good, it's to do with manufacturing. And there was a height of, well, I think, 1953, then there's some 27%, 28% of, of Americans worked in manufacturing. That now is down to about 12% or even less. And then when we think of the working class now, we think of Amazon and kind of zombie jobs and, you know, people working in warehouses. If manufacturing has gone and is going, is there an industry of which we think we can revive uh, working class pride in the way that if we use Detroit and Flint and those Midwest and Northern cities, they were built around industries and they provided uh, secure work. Isn't it true that secure work and tenure is kind of gone, manufacturing is gone? We're all in the gig economy now. We just have to like it and lump it. So, so one, I do think that we tend to lionize manufacturing a little bit um, and a little bit too much. I think to your point, look, a lot of these manufacturing jobs or the, the sector itself is, is, you know, highly automated. Um, we're not going to have, or we're not likely to have some manufacturing boom in the U S I think we need to just start rethinking is sort of what was it about this idea of manufacturing and, and the labor that went with it? What did it really mean? Right. If you're, you were doing something, you were employed by a company and you were, providing something valuable that created their product, right? So I think rather than sort of throw in the towel with this idea that oh, we're in the gig economy or everything's being automated and algorithms are running our lives, I think we need to really think about how the idea of labor gets redefined. And so this is something that I've, you know, Max and I have been talking about for a while. If we think about sort of the tech companies out there, what the fuel for their product is, we don't think of that as labor necessarily, right? So, and, you know, the economist, I think last year said that data was the new oil. It is the resource of value in sort of the 21st century. Well, if that's true, you know, people get paid to go extract oil. If your data and what you're doing online is creating the value that tech companies are extracting, well, that sounds like labor to me. So I think a lot of this is is while we need to sort of forget sort of the manufacturing era, the era that of the 50s, 
maybe we just need to start thinking about what's labor in today's era. And actually, are people employed today and working for certain companies and just actually not being compensated for it? Um, I, I just wanted to, um, to add something to what Zach said. You know, industrial manufacturing as we know it, it's not coming back. There's still so much raw and specialized labor power on hand. And, and with such a bleak future facing our planet in the forms of climate change, in, in increasing wealth inequality, the rising tides of global fascism, you know, we, we desperately need a more imaginative model for our political economy, a new deal sized investment in, you know, a more sustainable, more community operated and owned green economy. And this is something that uh, I talked to Sam Gindin about in the bonus episode for the GM series. We talk about the need for workers to not just strike, to not just unionize, but to think about repurposing these idled factories and these other resources that we have and creating this kind of demand for a massive investment, a society-wide investment in a new green economy. So that's one thing that I wanted to add to the question of where labor goes from here. But I think Zach put put it really perfectly when you know he said that that manufacturing is not coming back, but labor labor is still here. The problem is is that in the 21st century, the labor that we're doing is is largely labor that we're not being paid for. That this requires that we really reinvent our ways of thinking about labor and about labor politics um, and about political economy in the 21st century. And, and that is, in fact, what, you know, Zach and I are going to, you know, we're going to venture into that terrain either with a, a special series of working people or possibly with, uh, with a new podcast in the future. So, um, you know, keep, uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, better than keeping an eye out for a podcast, I'll keep my ear out for it. How's that? <laughs> that works, man. I'm on strike today because... Uh, Strong feelings about st stakeholders and not uh, stockholders. We need to really look at community effort here, and uh, the plans are for us to stay out as long as we have to. And uh, this is our weapon. We're using it, and we want to take advantage of uh, getting uh, back to the bargaining table. And hopefully, we'll resolve this, and we'll all be in a community effort together, including General Motors and the UAW. Uh, hopefully, this is a short one. We all want a short, short strike, but. Uh, Hey, whatever it takes. Max, one of the interesting things about the 2016 election was that candidates of the right and the left, and Bernie Sanders being of the far left, Donald Trump, depending on who and what you believe, is either far right or at least right anyway. Those two candidates definitely appealed and talked about working class Americans. Which one of those appeals do you think was, was the more disingenuous and why? Well, it's a tough question because in one sense, I kind of believe that, you know, some people 
including the most like vile politicians, may in fact be genuine when they, you know, are are entreating the working class to buy into whatever it is that they're selling. On the you know other hand, I think that any sort of political solution that doesn't address this problem on a systemic level, even if it is genuine, is going to be misguided and ultimately it's going to fail. And that this was also one of the things that, you know, made me start the the podcast Working People was that, you know, like I said, my our, our family had had lost just about everything. My mom um, and my my dad's a lifelong conservative. Um, my mom is more what you would call a Reagan Democrat. You know, I was raised very Catholic, very conservative, and and my dad's also a Mexican immigrant who came from poverty. After after everything that happened during the recession, he voted for Trump, and you know, I knew that there were plenty of people like him for whom. Um, whoa, whoa, the, whoa! Wait a minute. Your father, a Mexican immigrant, voted for Trump. My dad is a Mexican immigrant who voted for Trump. Yeah. Why? You know, in the very first episode that I did for the podcast, it was with my dad, like I said, because we needed to, I think, from a deep personal and psychological level, just kind of like open up to each other and deal with everything we had experienced throughout the recession, but also to to talk about political solutions and things like that. And, and you know, he's voted Republican since he became a citizen in the 1980s. His first vote was for Reagan. And he says in that episode that it was always kind of the, the state of the economy that drove uh, his vote. I think our, our family is pretty divided into like union um, workers and non-union workers. And that tends to be a pretty stable determinant of like which side votes Democrat and which side votes Republican. And so I think there was always that um, kind of history in the background for, for my dad and for people, you know, in, in his situation. But when it comes to the 2016 election, you know, I think a lot of other, you know, factors were really um, kind of getting thrown in. You know, I think like a lot of other people, my dad, you know, saw a lot to like in the message coming from Bernie Sanders and saw a lot to hate in the message from Hillary Clinton, which he saw as a continuation, a message of continuing the very economic policies that had you know, steered our country away from complete financial uh, meltdown, but at the same time did not recuperate the the, the quality of life or, or the cost of living for average working people like my dad. And so asking him to buy into more four or maybe eight more years of the same policies that had been in place when we lost everything was just... It was a very hard sell. And and unfortunately, that kind of left the field wide open for someone like Trump to claim disingenuously or not that that he was going to bring jobs back, make the economy great and blah, 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 blah. So the answer is Trump. The he, answer he, is Trump, that he that he went for Trump. And I think that he was not that he necessarily believed everything that Trump said, but that he was in a position where you know like he he had um he had i mean there there was really nowhere else to turn i think is how he puts it in the interview that we did or he felt like there was really nowhere else to turn it was either i think he described it as the evil he knew or the evil he didn't and having 
gone through losing everything and scraping to get by like the rest of us in the family, you know, like this, there was, that was kind of the, the last option that he felt that he had. It's not a million miles away from my mother who, um, Jamaican immigrant who voted for Brexit is something which, uh, I've said a couple of times on the podcast before that it's the only time in my life, child or adult, I actually had an argument with my mom. I just could not believe that my mother, as I said, a Jamaican immigrant, um, somebody who ultimately is on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed would fundamentally line up with people who are anti-immigrant and uh, some people, not all Brexiteers, but some people who voted for Brexit are utterly racist. But anyway, anyway, brother, um, I feel your discomfort when you're when, when a parent, somebody who you love and, and honour uh, makes a wrong move politically. Max, what is the end game for you with this podcast of yours? I, I listened to one today. Uh, it's a bit bit of a magnus opus, I would say. Loved all the audio clips at, at the start. A lot of research and time and effort went into finding those. And then um, you really do believe in long-form interviews, sir. So when will this end? When GM realises the error of its ways and is more socially responsible? Or are you going to take them down? What's going to be your end end game, sir? <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, thank you, thank you for listening um, to the GM series. You're right; uh, it's it's been it's been a full time job for the past like two weeks to put these together because, along with um, you know, doing all the research and and finding all the the clips for the introductions for the the Oshawa episode, the Lordstown episode, the Hamtramck episode. There are five episodes in this GM series in total. There are those three. There's a bonus episode with the labor activist, Sam Gindin. And then there's a final clip episode where I talk to, I think like six or seven workers, activists, writers, kind of giving commentary on these layoffs. And so for the past two weeks, I've been doing interviews every day, uh, reaching out to dozens and dozens of people, making contacts to workers in, you know, different states, different countries. Um, and and uh, I, I think, yeah, it is it is kind of the, the culmination of, of this first season of of working people. And, you know, I think over the next month, I'm going to think about what I want the next season to look like. But I think to, to answer your question about what the, the kind of end game is. You know, this is this was something that I've I've tried to kind of piece together in the introductions that I've given to a, to a couple of the episodes where, you know, again, I, I think first it started from that 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 genuine impulse to to find again that that kind of common humanity that we share with our fellow workers and to do that through a sort of long form discussion where you you really try to do the work of seeing and hearing um and 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 listening to um you know someone who whose life experiences may be completely different from yours but but in that sort of connection that you forge with them you remind each other that you deserve better than this and that you know we are so many of us in the same boat and then out of that <clears throat> you can you can start to see the, the 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 seedlings of of solidarity germinating you can start to see um you know more and more workers 
kind of listening to each other, talking with each other and and realizing that, you know, for for the station of, of workers to improve in this country and beyond, you know, we can't keep playing from the the position that we're playing from now. We have to organize we have to collectivize we have to reach out to one another and 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 find solidarity in our common struggle and make more uh put more pressures on these corporations on the you know government agencies that enable their plunder that erect out of you know the ruins of of deindustrialization a new better and more sustainable world where our communities can thrive. And I think forming that solidarity and and getting workers to first feel recognized and then to get workers to talk with each other and strategize is really the the end game. Where we go from there, I think, is is anyone's guess. But I think that that kind of work needs to be happening now and it needs to be happening in our everyday conversations with each other. So, Mr. Maximilian Alvarez, you'll finish your podcast when the workers of the world unite. I think that's the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Listen, uh, it's great being having you and your brother on Mid-Atlantic. Power to the people, sir. Power to the people, man. And thank you um, for, for having us on. All right. All right, dear listener, of course, we are on the run up to the Christmas period. So um, expect Mid-Atlantics to be coming at you in a in a less frequent manner uh, because, you know what, I've got to spend time with my folks. Uh, but don't forget, doing the right thing is good politics, which is right politics. Take care. Look after yourself. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.